All right, Grace Community Church, I'll give everybody just a moment uh, to get finished up with your prayer times. And we are about to head towards our time in the Word this morning. And I would like uh, to pray for our time together that God would use this time and His Word to strengthen us as His people. So let's pray. Lord, we come to You again today, Lord, and we thank You for Your Word. God, thank You for breathing out Your Word, Lord. Thank You for Your statutes, Your testimonies, Your commandments, Your promises, Your glorious Gospel that You have revealed to us. Lord, we ask that as we gather around Your Word this morning, that You would impart strength to Your people and that You would lift up our faces to the heavens, Lord, that You would encourage our souls, God. Lord, we pray that You would save this time from falling to the ground in vain, Lord, and not being profitable, Lord. Make our time profitable today for Your glory. You are the shepherd who leads us in paths of righteousness for Your own namesake. Lord, be pleased to lead us this morning for Your own namesake. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Alright, I'm excited about our time and the Word this morning. After seeking the Lord, I decided that it would be good for us to spend this morning considering the doctrine of the providence of God. The doctrine of the providence of God. In fact, if I were to give a title to this sermon this morning, I would call it the promise of His providence. The promise of His providence. And so I want us to remember together that every detail of this coronavirus situation and all the response to it among all nations, every detail of this whole thing is being ruled by the providence of God. And not only do I want us to know that, I want us to be reminded this morning and greatly encouraged of the promise that comes to us, God's people, because of His providential rule over all things. And so our text this morning is going to be Romans chapter 8. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn there and read Romans 8.28 with me. Romans 8.28. Familiar text, and this is going to be God's Word to us this morning. It says this, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. It's a wonderful verse of Scripture. No doubt many of you love this verse of Scripture. This verse might can point to many different places in your life where God imparted encouragement to you from this text, and I would encourage you, commend this to you, to, to have this one memorized, to get this one down, that your soul could pivot to this promise in God's Word. So for you note-takers out there this morning, I know you're there, I want to give you my outline at the beginning of our time so you can follow through where we're headed as we move through this text. And so I have three points this morning. And each of these three points have two sub-points each. 
And so here it is. Point number one, we're going to consider the God of Romans 8.28. Who is this God? We're going to consider specifically His purpose and His providence. And next we're going to move to the recipients of Romans 8.28. Who is this promise made to? We have two descriptions in this text. The recipients are lovers of God, and they've been called by God. And then lastly, we're going to consider the promise itself, the promise of Romans 8.28. And it's summarized in those two phrases, all things for good. All things for good. And so we're going to move through Romans 8.28 with these three points this morning. The God of Romans 8.28, the recipients of Romans 8.28, and the promise of Romans 8.28. Alright, I want us to start this morning with that little word and at the very beginning of verse 28. And we know, and we know. And that little word, that's a conjunction in Romans 8. And that, that little word reminds us that this verse that we're giving attention to this morning, this text, has a context. It's connected to a bigger theme in the chapter that it's located in. And so the Apostle Paul, his aim in Romans chapter 8, as we broaden out and quickly grab some of the context... His aim in Romans 8 is to encourage the believers in Rome, specifically in the context of suffering, and he's encouraging them with the reality of God's eternal plan of grace that he's unleashed in Jesus Christ on every believer. And so if you look back just a few verses in verse 18, this glorious theme is summarized with these words, at the end of verse 18, the glory that is to be revealed to us. So Paul is unpacking God's glorious plan and the capstone of that glorious plan is the eternal glory of the people of God. This is everywhere in Romans 8. Verse 17, we will suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Romans 8 verse 30, All whom He justified, He glorified. And so we see the Apostle Paul pointing the people of God to the end time glory that awaits us in Christ Jesus. And so this theme, it can actually be seen in verse 28 itself if we look at the very last word of our text. And that word is purpose. Purpose. And so this is where I want us to start this morning. And I want you to know this. Who is the God of Romans 8.28? The God of Romans 8.28 is the God of purpose. He's the God who has an eternal plan, an eternal purpose. Now, this is so helpful, so necessary for us to get a hold of. That our God is a God of purpose. It's especially helpful in adversities of many different types and stripes and kinds. That we would know that our God is a God of purpose. We need a firm conviction 
that everything in this world, every single day, every detail of your life and of my life is unfolding according to His purpose, His plan. Your life is not random. There is no chance that it's being governed by chance. It's according to God's purpose. The Bible tells us that this world has no contingencies and that there is absolutely nothing in all of history that has not been accounted for. There's no maverick molecules, maverick microbes. There's nothing that is being unaccounted for. Our God has purposed it all. All that is, is according to His purpose. And so I want to remind us of this, this, this truth about God. And I want to just echo a few texts of Scripture where the Bible blasts this truth about God. Isaiah 46, verse 10, God says this, My counsel shall stand... And I will accomplish, listen, all of my purpose. And so that's the God of the Bible. His purpose will stand and all of it will be accomplished. Nothing will be left undone of what God has purposed, of what God has planned. Psalm 33 verse 11. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. And the plans of his heart to all generations. To all generations. And that's a reminder to us in modern America. And in the unprecedented times that we're in right now. That text just said that his purpose. It's just as fixed as it was in ancient Israel and modern America. It stands to all generations. It never is undone. It always unfolds. And his plan can never be overthrown. It cannot be thwarted. Proverbs 21 verse 30 tells us that no wisdom, no understanding, and no counsel can avail against the Lord. And so let's step back for a moment and worship him. Who is the God of Romans 8.28? He's the God of eternal purpose. He has a plan. It always unfolds and it can never be thwarted. And so God has this plan. He has this purpose. And I want us to move on this morning to the doctrine of God's providence. God's plan and His purpose are the foundation of God's providence. That's a word we hear sometimes thrown around in Christian circles. What does it mean when we refer to God's providence. Quick definition here. God's providence is His rule. His rule over all creation all the time. God's providence is His rule over all creation all the time. And I think it's so good for us to be reminded that when we talk about the alls of Scripture, Like we really mean all. He's ruling over all of creation. The big things and the little things. So the Bible says this about God. That He is the one 
who lifts up kings and throws down kings. He's the one who establishes nations and lays nations to waste. That's the big things. He's at work in all of creation in the big things. He's the maker of mountains. But also the little things in Scripture. Jesus tells us that God's providence is focused in even on the smallest details that we can, that we can imagine like the hairs of our head being numbered, that not a sparrow falls to the ground on planet earth apart from this God governing it, willing it, and ruling over all things, the big things and the little things. And that means that no detail in our lives is too small. All is being ruled. All is being governed by our God. And so I want to kind of give a few comparisons here of the purpose of God and the providence of God. If His purpose is the thing that God decreed, then God's providence is His bringing about the thing decreed. And if you compared God's purpose to His mind, His plan, then you would compare God's providence to His mighty hand. He's not like us. We have all kinds of plans that we're not able to bring about. That never happens with God. Our God is in the heavens, and He does all that He pleases. And so when we talk about God's providential rule, we need to remember that this is an efficacious rule, that He's ruling in such a way to really bring about the end that He has Decreed his efficacious rule over all creation, all the time, bringing all things to their appointed end. According to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, our God is the one who works all things according to the counsel of his will. All things according to the counsel of his will. These truths about God, it'll change your life. It'll, it'll radically reorient the way that you've always thought about God, the way we enter into this world thinking about God. We think God is way smaller than He actually is, has, has far less power than He actually has. These truths about God, they change everything. They change everything. Nothing is left to, left to chance. He is the one who works all things according to to the counsel of His will. Again, this is the God of the Bible. We need to be very careful that when we think about God and when we say we believe in God and when we say we follow God, that we're not creating a God in our own image according to our own likeness. A God of our preferences, the way we've always thought Him to be. This is the God of Scripture. The one who rules all things every single day. God governs everything that happens. Let that sink in this morning. Everything, even the bad things, are being governed by God. There's no accidents. There's no oops. There's no thwarting God's plan. And so as we see these truths about God, we're reminded of the implications. If God's in control over all things, then brothers and sisters, that means that we're not. We are not in control. If He's sovereign, that means that we're not sovereign. If 
he's sovereign, it means that we are not. We are not in control. And just another reminder this morning, and neither is Satan. Satan is not sovereign. Satan is being ruled by God. And so one of the things that happens when we begin to think about God and His mighty power, how much authority He actually has, and there's some different ways that Christians have argued about this, about how exactly that God is sovereign. But I want to remind us, somebody has to be sovereign. Somebody has to be in control, ultimately, finally, at the end of the day. And if we take these truths about God and skew them, one of two things always happens. One of of two things always happens. Humans become sovereign. They become the decisive, ultimate cause of certain things. Or those who reject the sovereignty of God, oftentimes they have a really big Satan. They have a really little God and a really big Satan. And so there's always this sovereignty vacuum that has to be filled. Someone is sovereign. The Bible says that God is the one who rules all things. Proverbs 16, verse 1. He rules things that you, you, you might be surprised by. Proverbs 16, verse 1. The plans of the heart, they belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. And so every word that you say, the Bible just said that God is the one who brought it out of your mouth. And this is where we're instructed by God's word because the way that we've always thought, what we've always, apart from what God says in his word, is we, we think we determine what we say. Like we thought about the words and then we open our mouth and they come out, but the Bible says actually when those words came out, you were being ruled by God. You said what he ordained you would say. You are governed, your lips, your tongue are governed by God. And so these truths about God, they humble us because they put us in a subordinate place to God the King. He is Lord. He is God. Again, Proverbs 21, verse 1, says this, The king's heart is like a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. And so we have this example here in Proverbs 21 of a king the most powerful ruler in the land. And we're told that his heart is being controlled by God. God is controlling the heart of the king. We see this happen many times in God's word. It happened to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, right? That his heart was being governed by God. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, most powerful man in the land of Egypt. We see this again happen in King Nebuchadnezzar. That God rules his heart. He turns his heart uh, however he will. And so we see Pharaoh hardened and we see Nebuchadnezzar humbled by the mighty hand of God. And I want, you to, I want you to understand that that argument is from greater to lesser. It's a greater to lesser argument in God's word. And the way that works is this. You mean if God controls the most powerful man in the land... If the heart of the king is like a stream of water in his hand, how much more is my heart in the hand of God? How much more does God rule me? The greater to lesser. 
And so the Lord has much more authority, much more power, much more control than how we're born into this world thinking about God. And one final text, you know, one area um, that, that, that's explained away often is God rules over all things until something bad happens. And then all, the Satan, all of a sudden, Satan jumps in as the sovereign. God didn't do this, Satan did. Many Christians think this way. The Bible tells us in Job chapter 1 that Satan is being governed and, and restricted and ruled by God, that he has to have permission for what he does in God's creation. He is God's creature, under God's authority, under God's rule. Listen to how Amos says this, Amos the prophet. Amos 3 verse 6, he asked the question, Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Unless the Lord has done it. So brothers and sisters, I want to remind you this morning who God is. He's the God who has a plan and He's the God of providence who's ruling every single detail of all of creation all the time. Sovereign God. And I want to encourage you this morning, anybody listening, if you haven't done this already, I want to encourage you to trade in any little g lesser gods And I want to encourage you this morning, get yourself a sovereign God. The one who has all power, all authority. The one who is always in control. And I labor that point for this reason. For this reason. We have a glorious promise in Romans 8.28. A glorious promise. But this promise is only as good as the God who stands behind this promise. Who is this God? He is the sovereign Lord of all creation, the glorious sovereign King that works all things according to the counsel of His will. And so brothers and sisters, be reminded this morning that your God is the God of providence. He rules all things. There is not one microbe, one germ causing, uh, virus causing germ in all the world that is outside of His control and His rule. He's sovereign over all. He brought this about. He brought it about. Unprecedented. None of us have ever seen a season like this. And the one thing that we know is God brought this about. He's the sovereign Lord. This is our God. Next, I want us to move on. And I want us to consider together the recipients of this promise in Romans 828. And this is an important qualifier, okay? Because Romans 828 is, is a lot different than these sl- secular, uh, godless slogans that we hear all around us. Everything will work out. You know, when, when, when God closes a door, God always opens another. We have godless optimism all around us that's not rooted in God's word, it's a baseless confidence that everything's going to be okay. That everything's going to be okay. And there are a lot of people who are going to march through this world with, these, uh, with this false confidence, these slogans in their mouth, and they're going to wake up in hell because their confidence wasn't rooted in the reality of the gospel. 
And so I want us to understand Romans 8.28 is different. The message of Romans 8.28 is not everything's going to work out. There's an important qualifier here. I want you to notice that implicitly that this verse, like so many other verses in the Bible, it divides humanity right in half into two groups. And I want you to see that with me this morning. Let's give attention to the first group. We are introduced to those who love God. And then the second description of this group is those who have been called by God. Those who love Him and those who have been called by Him. Now this is really important. This is a description of every Christian. Of every Christian. Every believer. You're being described with these phrases. So don't, don't let this promise misfire by, by all this you know, inward um, uh, uh, gazing at, at yourself of, man, my love for God doesn't feel super strong today. I don't know if this promise is for me. That's not the point here. Christians love God. They love the Lord. And God has called them. The, the, these are descriptions of every Christian. Every Christian. They love God. What does that mean? It means that God has become the desires of their souls. It means that the Lord Himself is their highest joy and their deepest satisfaction. You see, they don't just love what God can give them. Christians love God. They love God. He is their Lord. The one for whom they were made, their lot and their portion in this world. Christians are lovers of God. All believers love God, and yet only believers can love God. And not only do they love God, we're told that this group has been called by God. God has summoned them. He's called them. Now, this is important that we understand that there's a category of speech in the Bible. We, we refer to it as God's decree. That when God speaks in this certain way, it absolutely brings about what it calls for. And we see this on the very first page of the Bible when God opens His mouth and He says, Let there be light. And you all know what happens. And there was light. You know, what we're not told in Genesis 1 is that all the light molecules started having this meeting saying, hey, should we come forth? Should we come forth? No. His authoritative voice brings the light forth on planet Earth. We see this again at the tomb of Lazarus when King Jesus, the Lord of all creation, when He speaks into this place of death, and he announces the words, Lazarus, come forth. And we know exactly what happens next. That that dead man was raised to life by the powerful word of Jesus Christ. And Christians were called in this way. We were effectively summoned. The Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 2 that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were dead men and women walking around this world in spiritual death. We had stone 
cold, dead hearts towards God and towards His, His law and towards His gospel. But the Bible tells us that God called us. He summoned us. We heard His powerful voice and He called us to partake of His grace, His saving grace. And His Word brought life to us in place of death. Christians are called by God. And the pairing of these things together, the love for God and the call of God, I love this, it reminds Christians that our love for God was preceded by something. In other words, it reminds us that our love for God was was preceded by His call. He did something to us before we ever loved Him. In fact, the Bible is clear about this, that He called us when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. He called us before we ever loved Him. He called us while Romans 8, 7 was true. We were hostile in mind. He called us while we were His enemies. Before we ever loved Him, and and when nothing in us was lovable, we were called by God, summoned to partake of His grace. And so He loved us first. And we love Him as a response to the gospel. He chose us. He began it. And yet every Christian loves God. He called us according to, to this text, not because we were worthy, not because there was something better in us than any other lost man or woman on planet earth. He, he called us, look at the text, according to His purpose. According to His purpose. Not because of our worth, because of His purpose. This is grace. This is the grace of God. Christians are humble lovers of God. They're humble because God loved them first. They're humble lovers of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. This is our reminder before we move on. It is because of Him that you are in Christ Jesus. You're a Christian this morning because of Him. Because of your sovereign, gracious God. It is because of Him that we are in Christ Jesus. So we have this first group. These are, these are the Christians. These are the ones whom Paul is, is, is seeking to encourage in Romans 8. These humble lovers of God. Partakers of grace. And then I want us to consider this second group by implication. If Paul singles out those who love God and those who have been called by God, then by implication, what does this mean? It means nothing other. There's another group that does not love God and has not been called by God. And these would be the non-Christians. The non-Christians, they do not love God. They have not been called by God. If Christians are humble lovers of God, then this second group are the prideful lovers of self. And so this is really important. All things don't work together for the good of all people. That is not what this text says. 
This promise is only for the first group, the Christians, and the unbelievers, the the second group, are excluded. Are excluded from this promise. Now, I want to speak directly to that second group for just a moment. For just a moment. I do want to mention to you that this is a terrible time. This this global pandemic that we're in, where you know normal rhythms of life as we know it are being interrupted all over planet Earth. I want you to know that this is a terrible time to pretend to be a Christian. To pretend to be a lover of God. Now, full disclosure, it's a terrible time any any time to pretend to be a Christian, to pretend to love God. But I do want you to understand that it is especially unfitting to pretend during this season that something is true about you if in fact it is not. And I want to encourage you that the circumstances that we find ourselves in right now they're a call for sincerity. They're a call for sincerity. This is a time to make sure that you are right with God. Hoping that you're saved or thinking that you're saved. I think I'm saved. I hope so. I hope God will accept me. This, this, this won't do. You need rock solid confidence that when you exit this world and enter into eternity... You need a confidence of how is your soul with God. And this is a call for sincerity. You say, what do you mean? Well, the Lord has given us a glimpse right now of His mighty power. Is He not? And just a small glimpse we're seeing that that this God, the sovereign God, I mean, think of all the things that are happening around us right now. Think of all the people worldwide right now that their normal daily rhythms of life are being disrupted. Nation after nation after nation. And then consider it took God, what, like three weeks to bring this about, to unleash it on planet Earth. And so we're being reminded in this season that for all of our advancement, all of our technology, all of our medical skill, that He's the Creator that He's the Creator and He can get our attention and He can bring the economy to a screeching halt. He can bring nations to their knees and He can do it in a moment. And so He's showing us, giving us just a glimpse of His power as ruler, of His power as Creator. And that ought to humble us. That ought to humble us. This, This time that we're in, is a season of being reminded heaven rules right now. Heaven rules. God rules among the kingdom of men. Heaven rules and we don't. And that's such a helpful dose of reality that God is king and we are not. Governments don't rule. Scientists don't rule. With all their insight, doctors don't rule. As thankful as as we are for these medical professionals that are serving on the front lines of taking care of sick people, they don't rule. 
They don't rule. Heaven rules. And God is the one with whom you must deal. God is the one with whom you must deal. So what a time to remember, right? That every created thing, everything in this world, that there's going to come a point in time where everything is going to fade away. And the only thing that will be left is your soul will stand before your God and you will give an account of your life to your Creator. And the Gospel tells us that Christ Jesus is your only hope in that day. That He came into the world to save sinners. If you are a prideful lover of self, the good news of the Gospel, Jesus came to save sinners just like you. Let this season be a call to put your trust in Him. To humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and put your trust in Him. You know what? If this pandemic brings you to faith in Christ, it'll be the best thing that ever happened to you. Even if that means you lose your job or your wife gets sick and even dies of the virus. If it brings you to Jesus Christ, it will be the best thing that ever happened to you. Your song will be the song of Psalm 119, verse 67. The psalmist says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. God has a record of using adversity and affliction to awaken us to our need. Even our brother Greg, the Lord, struck a mighty blow in his life during 9-11. He's working in Manhattan, World Trade Center, his whole life revolving around things of the world and the things that seemed so sure and so certain. And all of a sudden, in a moment of time, it was tore down. And God awakened him. Heaven rules. And you don't. Men don't rule. God is the king. What a time to get right with God. And so I would encourage you this morning, let all the uncertainty of this season drive you to the only rock that is Christ Jesus. So this is the God of Romans 8.28 and now we've located the recipients of this promise and now we come to the promise itself. God is the one who is working. Not this puny little ruler, but the majestic one. He's working specifically for His people. And this text tells us that He's working in all things for our good. This is a beautiful promise. That our God is working all things for our good. For our good. It's a staggering text. We would expect it to say that He's working all things for His glory. But the text says He's working all things for our good. For the good of His people. Sweet nourishment for our souls as followers of Christ. This is amazing grace from God. And so once we understand that this promise is for believers only, 
then we can pivot and we can, we can see that there are absolutely no exceptions to the all things in this text. And the thing where you're going to be tested on believing this promise more than anything else is what about the bad things? What about the bad things? It's typically not too difficult for us to believe that God can work all the good things for our good. But what about the bad things? And I do want you to see that the context of Romans 8 is so helpful in this regard because it shows us that the all things in verse 28 include the bad things. And so I want you to turn back with me just a few verses and notice the theme of affliction and adversity and suffering that is laced throughout this entire chapter of Scripture. Paul says in Romans 8, verse 17, Provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Verse 18, I consider the sufferings of this present time. This is us. The Bible is so realistic about the sufferings in this age. Verse 21, we are told that the whole creation is in bondage to corruption. Verse 19, subjected to futility. This is a world of suffering. Verse 23, we are told that the creation itself is groaning for deliverance of this futility. And then look at that list a little later in Romans 8, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? So the context is obviously suffering. He even goes on to tell these Christians, we are being killed all day long. And yet his very next phrase is, we're more than conquerors. All this stuff is true, but we win. We win because of the gospel. And so I want you to understand that the all things of verse 28, it most definitely and especially includes the bad things. And this is really important for Christians to grasp because sometimes as we take our pilgrim journey through this world, it seems like God is not making a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. You say, what do you mean? There are all kinds of afflictions and adversity and suffering that are indiscriminately placed upon both the wicked and the righteous. Things like coronavirus. What a perfect example. I really hope that you don't have a theology that says only unbelievers get sick with the coronavirus. I really hope not. That only unbelievers, only false converts will die from sickness in this world. What we're seeing is indiscriminate suffering. That Christians are getting sick. Non-Christians are getting sick. This nation is exposed to the virus. So is this nation. And so we have to face this truth square on. 
God does not always keep affliction away from His people. He does not. But there is a great difference. And this text draws us into God's promise. That even though these sufferings fall upon the wicked and the righteous, seemingly indiscriminate, there is a great difference. This text tells us that on behalf of the righteous, on behalf of the Christian, God is working in and through that affliction to do the righteous good. To do good for the believer. And so let's get rid of this idea that affliction and adversity in the lives of Christians is always a sign of God's anger. Let's get rid of this idea. Romans chapter 5 verse 1. Having been justified by faith. Finish it. We have peace with God. This is what Jesus has bought for us. We have peace with God. Anger of God placed upon the Son of God who was slaughtered in our place. Finished. No more condemnation. Only thing that's left is peace with God. And even in the case where God disciplines Christians for their sin, even in those cases, we are told that that discipline never comes from an angry judge, but only from a Father in heaven who loves us, who is totally committed to doing us good. The gospel promises us that Jesus has borne our penalty and all of God's punishment, and there is nothing left for us but blessing. This glorious promise that He will work all things for our good. One last clarification. What is the good that God promises to work on behalf of His people? And this is important because it's good as God defines it. It's so important. It's not our definition of good. Okay? It's not uh, your personal preferences of whatever you deem to be good. That's what God has promised to do in this text. It's not your personal happiness. So we ought to make Huge distinctions between happyology, every day's a Friday, Joel Olstein Christianity, God's going to do you good, 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 give you stuff, stuff, stuff. That is not the promise of this text. It's not our version of good, but our true good. Good as God defines it, our ultimate good. And that good is actually described in the very next verse. Verse 29 tells us that Christians are predestined to be conformed into the image of His Son. You know what the best thing that could possibly happen to us is that we would be shaped, molded, fashioned, and conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. Absolutely anything in our lives that has the outcome of us becoming more like Jesus. God calls it good. Good. This is the good that God has promised to bring us, especially in affliction. And so I want us to take a step back. What is God doing with this COVID-19 virus all the turmoil around it, all the responses to it. 
So many people have so many answers to that question. But the one thing that we can be completely sure of is this. That God is working COVID-19 and the whole scenario for the good of His people. This is His promise. What is God doing? He's doing us good with this virus. He's doing us good with all the ways that we're suffering. Different families are suffering in all kinds of ways. But what is the promise here? He's making it our servant. He's causing it to bow to our sanctification. He has sworn that He's going to use it to accomplish good in and for His people. So think of all the ways that members of this church are being affected. Some of you think that you've had the virus. Some of you have even been in the hospital. Some of you know a loved one who's been sick with the virus. Some of you are on the front lines treating sick patients treating those who have suffered from this virus. Some of you have lost your jobs. Some of you are scared that you're about to lose your jobs. It's affecting all of us, all around us. All of us are headed into economic uncertainty in the future of America. All of us are headed into these places. Most of us are are isolated right now, severely uh, disrupted in our normal rhythms of life. We have no promise that a, a member of Grace Community Church can't contract this virus and die in two weeks. We have no promise. But what is the promise? What can we trust God for? We can trust God that He will use all of these scenarios and all the ways that you're being affected. Your God will do you good. He has promised us in His Word. And even if you die, the Bible says if you die in Christ, you're more than a conqueror. That God will make death itself serve us. It will will be our escort into the eternal presence of of Jesus Christ forever and ever and ever. And so this text introduces us to this twofold objective of God's providence, His glory and the good of His people. And I was so encouraged as I considered this. Twofold objective in the providence of God, His glory and the good of His people. These two objectives are never opposed to each other. And so it's a false dichotomy every time we pit God's glory against the good of His people. That's a decision, a choice that God never has to make. He's totally committed to both objectives. You could say it this way. He never pursues His glory at the expense of the good of His people. No, never. You could say it the other way. Neither will he ever pursue the good of his people at the expense of his glory. Never. Now because these things are so bound together, his glory and the good of his people, think of how much comfort we have in this promise. Think of how much comfort is here. You could say it this way, just as certain as God will never allow anything to subvert his glory, Just as certain, He will never allow anything to subvert the good that He is working for His people. What a God. 
What a, what a salvation. What glorious grace that has been provided for us in the gospel. One takeaway that I want to leave you with this, this morning is that you would know something. And I get that right from this text. It says, and we know. And we know that this is what happens. We know this. This is the language of experience for the people of God. This is not the knowing of mere intellect where you say, yeah, I know what Romans 8.28 means. I know what it says and I know what it means. This is the knowledge of faith that says this promise is mine. This is my God. He will work all things for my good. This is an anchor in suffering, an anchor in every season of life. And so... Wouldn't surprise me at all if many of us were anxious and fearful. Some of you certainly are. And I want to remind us that God loves His anxious and fearful children. He loves us. And He gives us promises like this in His Word to strengthen us. He wants you to know deep in your soul to have an experience of trust in Him, that He is working in these circumstances for your good. Think of how beautiful, think of how beautiful it is, the totality of God, totally committed to your good, to your ultimate good. That the Holy Trinity is totally committed to His people. All of God. What a beautiful thought. All of His attributes for your good. All of His mighty power. All of His wisdom is being disposed to to bring about your good. Your ultimate good. All of His grace. All of His goodness. All His attributes. All of Christ's offices. Christ as your prophet. Christ as your priest. Christ as your king, uh, Christ as your atoning sacrifice for sin, all of the works of Jesus Christ to accomplish this mighty goal, your good, working all things for your good, all, all of the Spirit's gifts, all of the Spirit's power, all of the Spirit's effective work in this world to bring about your good, to work all things for your good. All of God's providence. Not one thing is wasted. All of His rule for your good. The blood of Jesus gives us great encouragement that God has already provided the most needed thing. He's already done the greatest work. He gave His only Son for the sins of His people. He's already done that. The blood has already been shed. He's already given us grace. And He's encouraging these Christians in Romans 8 that glory is coming. The God who gave us grace will certainly bring us to eternal glory. And so as we close, I want to remind you, don't waste the coronavirus. Don't waste it. I want to encourage you to labor to get the good that God intends to bring to you in all this. Don't waste it. Ask God to make you like Jesus. 
in this season and under these circumstances. And I'll say it this, this way. Don't weather the storm like the world does. Let it drive you to your God. Let it, let it cause you to trust in your rock. Ask God to, to use it to conform you to Jesus Christ, for He has promised to work it for our good. Let's pray. Lord, we come to You now, and we ask, Lord, that this, that this Word, we thank You for Your precious promises through which we become partakers of the divine nature. And Lord, we pray that this Word would be planted like a seed in our hearts, and that You would cause it to bear fruit, Lord, that you would fill your people, the God of hope, with all joy and peace in believing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.